0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Last week we looked at the first part of this chapter where we saw that uh, God was telling his people not to be afraid because he was using even a, a... pagan king like King Cyrus and uh, what he was doing was setting up a challenge and this is the second part of that challenge. We're going to look from verse 21. The first part of the chapter is God challenging the kings and rulers of this world. The middle part of the chapter is God reassuring his people and then from verse 21 we come on to the challenge again. So, uh, if we can go on and read the first part, I'm afraid this is not connecting. If you can move on, Jennifer, please. So, Isaiah 41, verse 21. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were, so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds, so that we may know you are God's. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. He who chooses you is detestable. We have to choose, each of us has to choose who we will serve and how we will live. And some of that is based upon what we consider the future to be. What is our future? There are people right now who are applying for universities and they're thinking, I want to apply to do medicine or I want to apply to do um, something. And they're geared towards a particular future. Or uh, if you're like me, you do history because you had no future in mind. But um, there are people, you know, you know what I'm saying, they're, they're, they're planning ahead, thinking ahead. Some people seem to have their lives incredibly well planned out. In that way. But it just rarely happens the way that we plan. And as God is presenting his case here, he challenges the people, he challenges all of us to think about who we serve and who we follow and who knows the future. Now, what's interesting in this whole passage is God is not saying. I am the God of Israel, and I am the best God. He's saying, I am the only God. And that is an important thing for us to understand and grasp. Calvin uh, says this, When we associate with wicked men, they pour ridicule on our hope and charge us with folly, as if we were too simple-minded and credulous. Our faith is attacked and frequently shaken by jeers, such as the following... These people hang on to clouds and believe things that are impossible and contrary to all reason. Things don't change much. Isaiah turns the tables. And I think this is a very important thing. If you're not a Christian, I want you to listen to this challenge. And if you are a Christian, I want you to be able to make this challenge. When we are defending the Christian faith or proclaiming the Christian faith, it's not just that we are being nice to people, it's not just that we are telling people what the Bible says, but we are also challenging people in the way that the Bible does as to what they believe, what, where their philosophy leads, and how do their idols and their gods work. And this whole section is done in that way. So let's think about it with just uh, a couple of really simple questions. First of all, he says, present your case. What are you going to do? Set forth your arguments. When we're trying to tell people the good news, that's what we're doing. We're asking people, okay, tell us. Tell us what you believe. Tell us your arguments. We would like to know them. Here, what the Lord is saying to the gods of the nations around, he's saying, You can't even interpret the events. You can't interpret the past. Never mind predict the future. Verse 23. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. He's saying, you do nothing. He's he's setting forth a challenge and then there is a silence. Now, sometimes people in their folly Will challenge the God of the Bible. There is a, a tombstone in England, in Leicestershire, where uh, there was a gentleman who stood up and yelled and pointed at the skies and says, God, if you're there, strike me with lightning. And he got hit by lightning. So it's recorded on his memorial. But that doesn't normally happen. That's why it's recorded on that memorial. But the God of the Bible does act. But the gods of the nations, the idols, do not act. So he asks simply, what will you do? Where all these philosophies, all these ideas, all these religions, what do they actually do? It's a very brave challenge. What will you say? Tell us the future, he says. It, some people think he's referring to a particular incident where uh, it was a place called Sardis. It's the capital of uh, a country called Lydia, and a king called Croesus. And Croesus had a number of oracles, basically his horoscopes, which foretold that he would get victory over Cyrus. And he lost. He was defeated. Your idols say one thing. Your gods say one thing. But it's not what happens. And that's why... In verse 24, he goes on to say, you are less than nothing and your works are utterly worthless. He who chooses you is detestable. They can do nothing and they say nothing. They are worse than nothing. They are a non-entity. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 4. An idol is nothing. They don't speak. They don't predict the future. Now, Isaiah... God is speaking through Isaiah and he's using this incredibly strong language. He's saying, if you worship false gods, that is detestable. And that's really hard in our culture to take because the notion of religion, actually, usually given by atheists, is that every god is false and it's just an expression of culture, doesn't do anything, and anyone to claim any kind of exclusivity... That's what's wrong, and that's what's harmful, and that's what's detestable. But the Bible recognizes and teaches that the gods we follow do show where we are at and do corrupt us. Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. Having rejected God, then we behave in a certain way. Psalm 135 verse 18 says those who make them, speaking of idols, become like them. I love what Jesus says in John 3 verse 19. This is the verdict. Uh, Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. In our arrogance and in our pride, we say that we choose to believe in God or we choose our gods. We choose our lifestyle because of the evidence, because we're rational, reasonable creatures who are able to discern. But we don't. We love darkness instead of light. And because we love darkness, then we will not come into the light for fear that our deeds will be exposed. When fallen human beings choose, we choose the idols of our own heart. So God is challenging the people, and He's saying to them, Present your case, set forth your arguments. What have you got? What can you do? What can you say? And then He contrasts. We'll go on to verse 25. I have stirred up one from the north, and He comes, one from the rising sun who calls on My name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar as if he were a potter treading the clay. Who told of this from the beginning so that we could know, or beforehand so that we could say he was right? No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. And here's the contrast, going back to the earlier part of the chapter. Isaiah is saying, this is the prophecy about Cyrus coming. North and east are mentioned together and Cyrus conquered all to the north and to the east from the Caspian and the Black Seas. And here's what is being said. I have stirred up one from the north. Is this not fate? God is the agent behind history. The Lord can tell the future from the beginning. The Lord acts. He calls on my name. We see that in so many different ways, and sometimes not as directly as we would like. I want to give you two instances. One uh, is a wonderful talk that Harry Melia gave at uh, the missions day that we had on Islam in Iran. And Harry was there when, in 1979, the Ayatollah Khomeini came to power in the revolution which many Christians at the time feared would be the end of Christianity in Iran. Well, now you come to today, and many of of Harry's friends were killed. But you won't get a Christian leader in Iran saying it was the end of Christianity in Iran. In fact, they even go so far as to call Khomeini God's servant, because now there are over 2 million Iranian Muslims who have become believers. Why? Because when people saw, part of the reason is when they saw the extremes to which go and that there was no answer and the corruption and the wrongness that came with it, they looked elsewhere. Or I can think of another example in terms of history. And I remember when I say this because of our Romanian friends here, I was always very interested in politics as a teenager. I was a bit of a geek, sorry. And uh, I... uh, I was fascinated by politics in Eastern Europe and in China. Communism, in other words. And Ceausescu. I'm sorry for my pronunciation, but that's how we were taught to say it here. And remember when he started bulldozing churches and thinking, you're going to be in so much trouble. And then to watch the fall of Ceausescu and what happened. A man who boasted in his many palaces... And in his oppressive actions, ended up losing his life, ended up losing all of his power. What Isaiah says here is that God knows, God acts. I love um, the the Cyrus thing because we, we, we know quite a bit about Cyrus and we know he was a politician. When he calls on God's name or when it says he calls on his name... He acknowledges his name it's not saying that he was a believer because this is what Cyrus did Cyrus would go and conquer a people and then he would say well I've conquered them because of your gods your gods are on my side so in Babylon he said Marduk the god Marduk helped me win or uh, the moon god in Ur of the Chaldees which he conquered he said that sin the moon god helped me win so he was very clever And here, I think he he is acknowledging the God of Israel, but I think he's still playing his politics. Yet, nonetheless, God uses that. You go to Ezra chapter 1. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build... the, people, the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. He was a heathen king ordering the people to fund the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. It's quite extraordinary. I thought of that a little bit this week with the budget, because there's George Osborne, a heathen chancellor, sorry, <laughs> um, yeah he is basically, uh, a, heathen, a non-Christian chancellor ordering or saying that the government will give 55 million pounds to help church roofs and so on. Uh, our application for the building fund in St. Peter's is going into Nicola Sturgeon as soon as possible. You get Christians who would say, oh, no, no, we can't use, this is tainted money. But I think a more realistic point of view is just simply to say God is in control and God can even move and use the heart of a heathen king. God, he says, our God stirs up. Our God acts within history. Our God is not one of these idols. Our God knows And verses 26 onwards, he says, they know the future. Who told of this from the beginning so that we could know, or beforehand so that we could say he was right? People were obsessed with predicting the future, and people still are obsessed with predicting the future. Well, Scripture is amazing, the number of prophecies that there are in the Bible that came true. God said, In advance, what was going to happen? And Israel was able to look back and say, it did happen. God did stir up Cyrus. This did occur. God spoke. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good tidings. I look, but there is no one, no one among them to give counsel, no one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. Now, it's a very simple, very, very simple message and a simple question for us. What is it like to live our lives without divine revelation, without knowledge from God? Many people will say, Well, I live my life by my own reason. But that's not good enough. That really is not good enough. Others will say, well, we live our lives according to this, according to that. And yet, the Bible comes and tells us that they are false, delusive, fraudulent. When there is no voice from heaven, then nothing we can do will fill the gap. It's false, it's nothing, it's wind and confusion. I think we are in an enormously privileged position Not because we are good. Not because we are better than anybody else. But because God gives his word to us. And that prophecy continues. It's not, and I know that some Christians want this, they want to go into a church and someone to prophesy what's going to happen to you this week. I don't know what's going to happen to you this week. I don't know how your visit to the doctor will work out. I don't know what's going to happen at your work. I don't know that you're going to have safe car journeys or whatever it is. But I do know that God speaks to us and continues to speak to us through his word. For any God to be worthwhile, Isaiah is saying, then he must be able to speak his word and watch over that word to bring it to pass. And the scripture's full of that. Numbers 2319, God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? John L. Mackay says that the God of Scripture is not one who has to wait and to see what the future will be. He doesn't have to wait for the choices of mankind. I remember once hearing a sermon which really shocked me as a young believer where a minister stood up and said... uh, Abraham had to make his choice and God held his breath while he waited for Abraham to make the right choice. As if what's going to happen is dependent upon us making the right choices. Surely it's much better to believe in a sovereign God who actually knows the bad choices that you're going to make and has planned ahead for them as well. Isn't it much better and much more comforting to realize that you can screw up and you don't screw up the whole of God's plan? Do you know how sometimes people say to you, God has a wonderful plan for your life and that's plan A and you've got to make sure you get it right because otherwise you're on to plan B. Well, as far as I'm concerned, if I use the Americanism, I'm on to plan double Z. and so, uh, You know, I'm just, I'm, uh, you know, you're kidding. Surely any of you have got any experience at all, you know that that's not how it works out. God has his perfect plan for your life. You need to make all the right choices. You make all the right choices. Wow, you're there. I think the wonderful thing about the God of the Bible is just as he can take a pagan king like Cyrus, he can also take the folly and stupidity of his own people and still bless us and use it for his glory. He is the God who is in control of history and who has complete knowledge of all that will occur. So I think there's a kind of a double challenge here. There's a challenge which says if you're going to go any other route, if you're going to worship a god who doesn't know the future, if you're going to worship or or follow a philosophy or a teaching which has lots of talk but doesn't do anything, then really it's empty and it's meaningless, and it's vain. But if you're going to follow the God of the Bible, then there is a, this tremendous hope that we have that somehow in the midst of it all, in the midst of the chaos, and in the midst of the confusion, there is purpose, and order, and meaning, and beauty, and truth, and love. It's almost kind of re- reverse situations, A lot of people today will look at the world and they'll say, well, my my world is reasoned and my world is ordered and things are just quite okay. When in reality, they're chaotic. And there's an emptiness and and a sorrow and a darkness that lies underneath the seemingly calm surface. Or there's the situation that the believer finds themselves in. Where we recognize the world as chaotic, where there are lots of things that wound and hurt and confuse us and that would cause us to feel empty. But we realize that behind all of that, in the midst of all the storm, there is a God who takes hold and there is a God who knows what is happening and there is a God who plans the future. I finish with reading from John 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. Our God speaks and our God acts and supremely his speaking and his acting have been in Jesus Christ. All the speaking and acting in the Old Testament were pointing forward to Jesus Christ. All the speaking and acting in the New Testament point to Jesus Christ as well. He is the word from God to us. It's why we worship him. It's why we seek to know him better. And it's why we come to hear his word. Because there's nothing speaks a better word than the word of God. Now, you can have a life where you carry on listening to the different philosophies, the, the different thought patterns, the different influences that are all around. But ultimately they will do nothing and they will say nothing that ultimately can help you. Or you can listen to what God says to us in his son Jesus Christ through the word that speaks of Jesus Christ. The reason our God is different is he has spoken, he continues to speak, he has acted, and he continues to act. And therefore, whatever our circumstances, we can trust and believe and hold on to him. May God bless his word to us.